Good morning. Take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. You made it. This is the end. Seven months in the first part of Genesis. Seven months to cover 11 chapters. It's not that bad. We rushed through some of them. Keep that in mind uh, for when we start the second part of Genesis, which is 39 chapters. That won't be quick. But first, what we're going to do is we're going to take an Old Testament break to spend a little time in the New Testament. Next week, I will be away preaching at Grace Baptist Church while Pastor Peter preaches here. And I don't want you to miss that. You need to hear occasionally from other voices other than my own. And I particularly like when Peter comes because we basically agree on everything theologically. But he brings a wisdom and an intensity and a style that's somewhat different from my own. And that's a good thing for you occasionally. And so then on the 17th, when we come back, we're going to start up a new series through the book of Philippians as we take a break in the middle of Genesis. I'm really excited about Philippians. I'm joyful about Philippians because that's what Philippians is largely about. If it's been pretty heavy here in the first part of Genesis, and it is, and it will be again today, it's going to be nice to take a brief look at joy. And what is joy? Joy, maybe you're not like me, but joy doesn't come very naturally to me. So I'm very much looking forward to kind of an extended study on what is the nature of joy and how is it that Christ brings us such joy. So start reading through Philippians, and we'll start that back up in on the 17th. But first, we need to finish the first part of Genesis. Think back for a moment, if you would, to last week. Chapter 11 and chapter 10 go together. You have to read them together. Our passage this week begins with, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. But last week, we looked at 70 different names of peoples, and verse 5 talked about these peoples, each with his own language. Chapter 10 is many people with many languages. Chapter 11 starts with whole earth, one language. So remember, keep in mind that these chapters are not arranged in chronological order, but theological order. So we looked last week at the main idea of chapter 10, and we saw that it was the unity of all nations. Right? Our culture is obsessed today with what divides us. It's obsessed with gender and sexuality as identity markers. It's obsessed with race, which we saw biblically and scientifically isn't a thing. We are all of us one race, united in origin. That's what 10 is emphasizing. All these 70 names come from these three names, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, come from this one name, Noah, who ultimately comes from this one name, Adam. We are all one in Adam, which means then that we are also one in the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God. That's our unity. We are like God. That's an identity, right? Why would we want to emphasize anything else? So Moses is brilliant in what he's doing here. By putting the Tower of Babel after the Table of Nations, Moses is first highlighting the inherent goodness of the unity of all nations. This was a good thing initially, but he also started to hint at some seeds of a potential problem. And we saw that especially with the person of Nimrod in verse 8 of chapter 10. Well, now in chapter 11, those seeds are in full bloom as we see what a united mankind uses that unity for. 11 is the rest of the story. 11 is the explanation of how a unified humanity became so divided. 11 is the explanation for how one language became so many languages. 11 is the culmination and conclusion of the whole story that began all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6, with the first sin. There we had one unified couple rebel against God together. Here we have one unified people rebel against God together. There, the one unified couple was separated from God and scattered. Well, here, the one unified people are separated from each other and scattered. And so the first part of the whole Bible ends in disaster. The end of the beginning is only judgment. And here is sin once again. Here is what mankind accomplishes and achieves apart from God. Here is man's best attempt to unify and to come together and to make a name for himself. And we're going to see the result of our supposed greatness in God's eyes. All right, just don't, as we're reading this, don't forget that this is the last narrative. 
of the first part of the Bible. That makes this a defining and definitive statement. Everything that begins in chapter 12 is to some degree colored by how things end here in 11, and they don't end well. So last week we looked at all nations. This week, I want to try and show you how the first part of Genesis, the end of the beginnings, really ends with no nations. We're going to trace this chapter from one to none. We're going to start with the one, one nation united in sin. Then we're going to see that move to the many nations divided in judgment, which means ultimately, as I want to show you at the end, is that there are then no nations united with God. As we read this, try and forget chapter 12. Just forget it. Put it out of your mind. Don't think of Abraham. Don't do it. You know what God is going to do. I want you to forget it for a moment. I want you to see that the end of the beginnings ends as darkly as possible. If you read 11 without knowing 12, there is no hope. It is only darkness and judgment. It is separation from God. It is separation from each other. And I'm going to show you how that's the case even in the chosen line. And if we can see this, if we can just sit in the dark for a little bit, if we can see and feel how bad the human condition is apart from God, maybe then we'll be ready to finally uh, appreciate the light. Maybe then we'll finally be ready to begin to believe that God's grace is the only hope for mankind. If chapter 11 is true, and if things are this bad, then grace is our only hope. So let's, let's read it. We're going to read the whole chapter because it's God's word. We will give most of our attention to verses 1 through 9, but then we'll cover that genealogy. I'm going to read the names again. We're not going to skip it. Um, but we'll spend most of our time in the first part, though we will look at the whole thing. But let me read it for you first. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 32. This is God's word, right? God sovereignly ordained that this would be the word that you heard when you came to church today. So let's see what God has to say. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sirig. And Reu lived after he fathered Sirig 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sirig had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sirig lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Uh, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. If you would bow with me, and let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I'm thankful for this passage, the strange passage. Lord, guide us, direct us. Father, I'm excited, um, but Father, I know that um, nothing good will be accomplished without you. Um, so Father, I pray that our excitement would be about you and about hearing from your word. Father, I pray that you would uh, use me. And Father, protect me from myself. Uh, protect me from um, saying anything incorrect. And Father, speak only truth um, through this word today. I pray that you would show us ourselves, uh, show us mankind apart from you. Father, use this uh, to show us how much we need you and how much we need your grace, oh Lord, to speak, oh Lord, through your word in this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we focused on unity. Well, here's the unity. Verse 1, the whole earth has one language. Not that surprising. If only eight people had survived the flood and it's all one family, those eight people come out from the ark. They probably all understood each other. They probably spoke the same language. Everyone descended from them, sharing that one language. Everybody's unified. Not a problem. Yet, verse 2, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, already in verse 2, we have a problem. First off, we've already seen back in chapter 10, verse 10, that Shinar is associated with Nimrod, who's the bad guy. So not a good sign already. But the people are multiplying. They're spreading out. They're migrating. That's good. God has commanded this. Chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Repeated twice again after the flood. 9-1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 9-7, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply. God is the God of life. We've seen that God loves life. God wants to multiply life. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards describes God with a metaphor of a fountain. Right? It's the very nature of a fountain to, to fill and to overflow. It is the very nature of God to fill and to overflow. Edwards puts it much more eloquently. He says that God has a diffusive disposition. He has a communicative disposition. Just meaning it's his nature to flow out and diffuse himself and to communicate himself to others. And so God creates out of this great abundance. He multiplies and he spreads life and he commands us, the climax of his creation, to multiply and to spread life and to fill the earth. And in so doing, to be like him. But what are they doing in verse 2? They're settling. God has said, spread and fill. They stop and settle. And we've seen this before. This isn't new. We've seen this already with Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Remember Cain, the first seed of the serpent, the founder of the city of man. He spills the blood of his brother and God curses Cain. And in 4 verse 12, he had said, Cain, you'll be a fugitive and a wanderer. But what did Cain do? Verse 16, he settled in the land of Nod, the land of wandering. He settled in the land of wandering. It's great wordplay. And he did so east of Eden. And then in the very next verse, he builds the first city. And then he gives that city a name, which is his son's name. Good grief, that's this story, right? That's, that's what's happening in Genesis 11. It's the same thing. We have settling, we have a city, we have a name, and we have east. If you see it there in the ESV, it says from the east. And here's where they're, they're too slavishly following the King James. The word could be translated that way, but every other translation translates this word as eastward. Right? The people are spreading out to the east, not from the east. And that's important because in scripture, east is bad. 
Uh, Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden to the east. A cherubim stands guard at the east of the garden. Cain goes out east. Now these united sinners are going east, right? East is outside of. It is away from the presence of God. Keep that in mind, Long Islanders. Keep that in mind. Anyone considering moving east? Biblically. Anyone considering moving super east, like Italy or something? Keep this in mind. East, biblically, is bad. The point, though, kidding aside, the point is that their settling is in direct disobedience to God's word. They're gathering together and their settling together is sin. United mankind is united in sin. All nations are united in sin and it just gets worse. So they're settling, but the big question is why? Are they settling? Start with why. God has told them to spread out. They choose to settle. Why? Well, the text tells us. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is a strange verse. This whole wonderful story is only nine verses, and one whole verse is given over to bricks. Why? Well, the Hebrew experts will tell you, this is a brilliantly constructed Hebrew sentence, and it employs all kinds of literary devices. There's assonance and alliteration and word play. It's great writing, but I'm not a Hebrew expert, and you're not so either, so we're going to have to take their word for it. But there are a couple things going on here in this verse that, that, that stand out. First off, brick making was supposedly a Babylonian invention. Right? They originated this, and then it spreads everywhere else. This was one of the great Babylonian cultural accomplishments. This is one of the things that that sets them apart. This is one of the things that made a name for them. So these bricks are highlighted in this story about the beginnings of Babylon. And plus, we've all learned this lesson from the crib, right? Three little pigs. Hay provides little stability and security. Just takes the huff and the puff of a big red wolf and it all blows down. Same thing for a house constructed with sticks. A little bit better, but not much more. But bricks, ah, those, those are solid. Those are permanent. Bricks provide stability and security. That big bad wolf can huff and puff all he wants, but he's not going to blow down a house of bricks. So Moses is brilliantly drawing our attention to these bricks and what they are supposed to represent and provide for his people, stability and security. And so he repeats the word. In the Hebrew, the phrase of verse 3 technically reads, they say, come let us brick bricks. It's the verb and the noun. Come let us brick bricks. So there's repetition, but then we get the word a third time in this short sentence, and they had brick for stone. Three times in one verse. So Moses is saying, hey, pay attention to the bricks. Here's three times in this one verse. Oh man, the fun's just begun. I, I want to write like Moses when I grow up. This is so good. Right? The biblical Hebrew alphabet has no vowels. Right? Written Hebrew consists only of the consonants. If you ever see Hebrew, and you'll see the letters, but then you'll see a bunch of dots under the letters. Have you seen that? Those dots are the vowel points. That's the vowels. But those come much later. Right? Those aren't there in the original Hebrew. This book, Genesis, as it was originally written, didn't have vowels. It just has the consonants. And so brick was leaven, which is just L-B-N. You see the word brick? It's just L-B-N repeated three times. They want stability and security and unity with their bricks. But then we get God's response to this in verse 7. Peek down at verse 7. And verse 7 is the parallel verse to verse 3 in this story. I can't do this story justice. It's, it's really, it's that well written. All right, so nine verses. Real quick, look at it. There's nine verses. Verse 5 is obviously the middle of nine. And verse 5 is when God comes down. Everything revolves around verse so verses 1 through 4 is man and what man does. Then verses 6 through 9 is God and what he does. And each verse, parallel, in each section parallels the other section. So verse 1 matches verse 9. Verse 2 matches verse 8. 3 matches 7. I know this is too much. Whatever. This is called a chiasm. But the point right now is that verse 7 is God's response to verse 3. And in verse 7, God confuses their language. And the word confuse in the Hebrew is just a reversal of the consonants of the word brick. Brick is L B N, 
confuse is N-B-L. It's the same word, just flipped. And so God is saying here, let us unbrick their brick. It's, it's brilliant. The thing that they think is going to give them stability, God makes it only confusion. And we're lingering here for too long. I know it's too long. But because this is the pattern for the story, and I need you to see this pattern because this is also the pattern for your story. Because this is the pattern of sin. What they try to sinfully make in verse 3 just gets unmade by God in verse 7. They try to settle in verse 2. What happens in verse 8? They get dispersed. They do one thing in the first part, and then they end up getting the exact opposite in the second part. And that pattern happens again in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Why all these bricks? What do they hope to accomplish with these bricks? Get this verse. This is a modern, relevant verse. This is exactly what you still do today. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The bricks are for a city and a tower, and the city and the tower are for a name and security. And in seeking those things, in their gathering together, in direct disobedience to God's word, they are seeking to find significance and security in themselves, in their own achievements, apart from God. And this is no different than what all of us are doing with our sin. This is what you are seeking in everything that you do. You are seeking a name and you are seeking security. You are seeking significance and you are seeking safety. You know, let's be clear, those are, those are good things, right? You need those things. You cannot live without those things. You cannot live without significance and without security. The question then is, where are you seeking those things? Where do you believe that you can find this significance and safety that you so desperately need? And you can probably give me the right answer, but the answer isn't just in what you say. The answer is also in how you live. What would your life, uh, your daily decisions, how you use your time, what you think about, how you use your money, what would those things reveal about where you believe that you can find significance and the security that you so desperately need? Because again, the problem here is that they are seeking those things, again, those good things, they are seeking them outside of God. They are seeking them east of Eden. So this sin here at Babel is actually then identical to the first sin in the garden. Right? It's simply a rejection and an abandonment of the divine will and word. This is what sin is. It's not thy will be done, but my will be done. Not thy kingdom come, but my kingdom come. So what we're seeing here is man's futile attempt to gain and attain security apart from God. Man's futile attempt to attain significance apart from God. Man's futile attempt to attain salvation apart from God. And this is what has started right away in the garden. But it's coming to full fruition here at the tower. And thus throughout the rest of scripture, Babylon is going to be set up and serve as the prototype for pride. We don't need you. We can do this without you. We're good. We can be like God. Which is, again, that's, that's just the garden. We've already seen that this is a replay of Cain in Genesis 4. And Cain in Genesis 4 is just a replay of Adam and Eve in Genesis Three. This is the first sin all over again. When Satan came in and said, yeah, did, did God really say? Right? He's undercutting. He's challenging God's word. And then verse 5, he says, oh, but, but you will be like God. That's what these people really want. And guess what? That's what you really want. Because this is the heart and soul of sin. As John Stott says, sin is man putting himself in the place where only God deserves to be. That's what you're doing every single time you sin. You are attempting to assert your autonomy and authority over God. You are telling him that he is wrong and that you are right. That you will do what you want and not what he wants. That you are God and he is not. And if there is this God of all perfections who creates and sustains everything, who creates and sustains us, 
Now he's starting to then see how sin could be such an affront to him. These people are rejecting God and asserting self. This is all nations united in their rebellion against God. And in rebelling against God, they are elevating themselves as God. And in elevating themselves as God, they are ultimately worshiping themselves rather than God. That's what sin always is. Sin is always a worship of yourself over God. Sin is always your attempt to find significance and security, but to find it divorced from God. Which tragically and ironically is the only place that it can be found. And so that's why we keep trying. And that's why sometimes we keep getting the thing that we want, right? Hey, here's the thing. If I get that thing, then I'll be good. We get that thing and we're not good. Oh, all right, needs to be something else. And so we keep looking and we live in this state of perpetual dissatisfaction because these things are only found in him. This isn't just about building a tower, right? Towers are great. I've lived here for six years and I still look up. I'm the tourist in Manhattan when I go in. I still look up at the big buildings. I, I, I love them. The tower's not the problem. The people are the problem. Right? Their attempt to assert themselves apart from God is the problem. It is a rejection of the very one that made them. It is a rejection of their good creator who made them for him, who told them where they would find their significance only in relationship with him. And in attempting to find it elsewhere then in themselves, they're calling God a liar and they are rejecting and rebelling against him. That's what this tower represents. And so the obvious question then is, what is your tower of Babel? And what is it? I'm not building buildings, none of us are doing that, but how are you trying to make a name for yourself? That's what the tower is about, significance, making a name for themselves. How are you doing that? Where are you seeking significance and security. If you had to answer the question, and everyone should have an answer to this question, if you had to answer the question, what are you living for? How would you answer that? Right? What brings you the most joy? Which we're going to look at in Philippians. Where do you like to find meaning and value and identity? If that thing is not God, then that's your tower of battle. That could be so many number of things. Uh, for many of you, it's your work. It's, it's what defines you. Work is what defines you. It's why you get out of bed in the morning. It's why you work so hard and so many long hours because in doing and doing well, you find your identity. And that identity defines you and it gives your life meaning and value. But for many of you, it's a relationship or it's the lack of a relationship. You're not finding significance and security in God. You've realized, like I've realized myself, that you definitely can't find it in yourself, so you've convinced yourself that you can find it in somebody else. It's gonna be friendship, it's gonna be a romantic relationship, but, but as long as you got someone else giving you attention, right, you feel valued and justified. Right? That person is where you're finding your significance insecurity. This can happen in marriage. This can happen in parenting relationships, in any of these relationships. Are you looking to find these things in a person? Maybe Facebook is your tower of Babel. For some of you it is. Right? It's your attempt to make a name for yourself. Right? So much of Facebook or social media in general is little more than a subtle cry for attention. Look at me. Notice me. Tell me that I matter. I need a heart or a thumbs up or whatever the thing is now. Um, it's really less about the social part of the media, but more about the me part of the media. And that's why you actually have something called selfies. And isn't that insane? Right? The, the, the nature of sin is the turn away from God to self. Sin has always been understood as being curved in on the self. And today that's the very thing that we celebrate. Right? We celebrate the self. We post oddly posed and decorated pictures of, of that self. Don't, with those weird apps, don't do that with my girls, right? I'm trying to save them from the world and, and from those things. Um, but Facebook is very much a modern day tower of Babel, trying to make a name for yourself. Look, writing a book is my tower of Babel right now, honestly. Like, I know it's not true, but I believe that I'm convinced that if I can write and publish a book, then I'll matter. Right, then I will have proven myself. I will have justified 
my existence. I have taken an idol of intelligence, of being seen as smart. I have determined that smart people write books, and so I've decided that to really prove that I'm the thing that I sinfully value, I must write a book. And if I do, if I can even put my name on the front of it, right, maybe bigger than the title, if I can have my name there, then I will have made a name for myself, and I will be significant and safe and secure. How are you trying to find significance and security? What's your Tower of Babel? You notice, this is just idolatry. We were talking about this morning for some reason with the girls. I don't remember how it came up. We were talking about idols, and Melissa was like, but we were, she was talking to Emma, she's like, but you know, right, idols are not just little stone statues. And Emma's like, right, sometimes they can be big stone statues. <laughs> and that's what this is, right? And you have one of these big stone statues in your heart. Like, what's this thing that you're using to affirm yourself and to identify yourself. That's what they're doing in verse four. They are one, one nation, but they're united in rebellion. They're one nation under sin. They think indivisible with liberty and justice for themselves. So yes, there is unity. Again, we saw that we looked at the goodness of that unity last week. We're all one in Adam, one people, all created in the image of God. But here's where we're seeing where that unity in sin ultimately leads to. And this story should warn us that any of the world's attempts to unite apart from God will ultimately end only in disaster and division and destruction. Because listen, unity is impossible apart from the one that is unity. And if it's the nature of sin to separate, and surely by now we know that it is, right? We've been sin separates, sin separates. Then any idea that sinners can ultimately unite is absurd. It cannot and won't happen. Right? Look here at what sinful uni unity accomplishes. Rebellion and destruction. Just go back and study world history to see what sinful unity has accomplished in the past. The Soviet Union was quite unified and that unification resulted in the deaths of millions of people. November 17 was the 100th anniversary of the, of the Bolshev Bolshevik Revolution in Russia that started the whole communist revolution. And the, the front page, the headline in the Wall Street Journal was 100 years of communism, 100 million dead. Their sinful humanity coming together, 100 million people die as a result. Man, what a recent and, and relevant example of what happens when sinful humanity unites sinfully. And so we start... And again, we spend most of our time here with one nation united in sin. But we've got to at least touch on the other points. Look down, go to number two. Let's look at that real quick. We go from the one to the many. The one nation united in sin leads then to the many nations divided in judgment. We've seen what they've done. Look at verse five now as the text shifts to what God is do, going to do. Verse five says this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Stop there. That's a wonderful verse. It's dripping with sarcasm. It's so well uh, written. I want to hang out with Moses because he seems like a funny guy. Um, Yahweh God, who is omnipresent and omniscient, who is everywhere and who knows everything, has to come down to even see their measly little what was that thing down there? What's going on? What are you guys doing there? I know everything and see everything, but I can't, I can't really tell. He has to come down to see it. They think they're great. God simply laughs. Right? They build a giant tower. We found some of these towers. We haven't found this tower, but we found towers that would have been like this, modeled after the, the ziggurats in the Middle East. There's one in Ur, where Abraham was from, and there's this giant big ziggurat, this tower that's 200 feet tall. I mean, the World Trade Center is 1,776 feet tall, and it's not even the tallest building in the world. Right? This thing is nothing. This thing is 200 feet. But it represented something. Again, it's not about the tower itself. Right? There's all these pictures of some tower ascending the sky, getting really, really high. This is a squat little thing. Because it's about them, and it's about their hearts and what they're trying to do with it. And God recognizes this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. They're unified there's one nation, God sees that, and he says, nothing will be impossible for them. Now, we've got to read that correctly. God's not here concerned about 
competition. Oh no, what are they going to do? Are they going to take over? Are they going to reach me or something? No, he, he's, he's concerned about the great evil that an unchecked, unified, sinful humanity would be capable of. He's not saying no excellent thing will be impossible for them, but no evil thing will be impossible for them. And so he acts and he graciously intervenes to protect his creation and to check the spread of this evil. Verse 7, which you've already looked at. He leavens, or he nebbles their leavens. He unbricks their bricks. He confuses their language and thus divides and ruins their unity. The one nation united in sin is now many nations divided in judgment. He had said, be fruitful and multiply and disperse over the face of the earth. They refused. So now he disperses them himself. And verse 9 sums it all up. They wanted to make a name for themselves, but the name they got is Babel, which sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. Probably not the name that they were looking for. And again, here is the very nature of sin that we all know, but you don't really believe it, and you'll prove it today, sometime later in the day, sin only ends in shame. That's how your sin, apart from the grace of God, will always end. As sin is the ultimate bait and switch. It promises one thing, but then it delivers the exact opposite. They make bricks. They get confusion. They try to settle. They get dispersed. They want a name. They get shame. They attempt construction. God accomplishes destruction. Your, your sin is always an attempt at construction. Right? You, you don't sin and be like, all right, this thing's bad, and it's awful, it's going to do awful things, so I'm going to do it. No, it's because you think it's going to do something good. You think it's going to provide pleasure or whatever it is. You think it's going to construct something and add something to you. You think it will build a name for you or give you pleasure or security or provide you purpose. But what we've got to see here and constantly remind ourselves is that sin always and only accomplishes destruction. Guys, remember that. Remind yourself of that next time you're tempted with sin. It will not deliver. I guarantee you, I don't believe in prophecy, but I am telling you that it will not deliver the thing that you think that it will. It never does. It offers pleasure. It delivers only pain. It offers a name. It delivers only shame. Okay, so don't miss that the one thing they tried to avoid, being dispersed, actually happened. They got dispersed. So as, as Legan Duncan summarizes so wonderfully, he puts it, self-glorification is always self-defeating. Self-glorification is always self-defeating. The pursuit of self is always self-defeating. So we start the story here with unity, and we end it only with diversity and discord and distrust and division. And so if you think about it, as one of the scholars in the commentaries puts it, he says, our diversity to some degree is a monument to this and a monument to our sin. It's supposed to be this wonderful, good, beautiful thing, but we came together and used it only for sin, and so we get dispersed as a result of that sin. And so the solution, right, if here's our attempts to solve it, if here's what happens when we attempt ourselves to unify and to come together, if there is a solution, well, it just must be something else. It must not be us. That's the one thing that I want you to take away from this. This is the one thing that Genesis 11 won't let you uh, believe, is that we can do something about this and we can fix it. Genesis 11 is saying, nope, you can't. Something's going to have to come outside of you. Something's going to have to be done for you. I was reading one guy this week who was arguing that the one dynamic driving all of the insanity behind our increasingly secular and divided culture is our denial of our creatureliness and the assertion of our autonomy. Our denial, in other words, the denial that we are merely creatures and that God is the creator. And instead, it's the assertion that we are God and that he is not. Well, that denial is what is happening here at Babel. And that denial is what is happening today. Well, we don't need that. We don't need him. Uh, we can do this. We've got this. We don't need God because we're basically God. That's what they're doing. That's what everybody's trying to do today. And what we're seeing here 
is that that can only end in disaster. Great nations cannot long defy God and survive. Well, we've seen that forever in history. We've seen it here. We've seen it in Greece. We've seen it with Rome. We've seen it with Al- We've seen it with all of them. Right? Great nations cannot long defy God and survive. We cannot long defy God and survive. And so Babel must warn us because the end of this united humanity is only division and destruction. And this end, this final narrative of the first part of Genesis, I want you to notice this, is different from all the narratives that have come before it. There is no note of grace. There is no promise of blessing. There is no hope of salvation. There is no covering for the naked sinner, as in Genesis 3. There is no protective mark on the fugitive, as in Genesis 4. There is no rainbow in the sky, as in Genesis 9. Part 1, the beginnings, ends only with judgment and with scattering and with confusion. And as we said last week, the gospel is the reconciling antidote to the divided and diverse nations. But man, look at this text. Where is that gospel? I don't see it anywhere in here. And here's the point that I want to make clear. I don't see it anywhere else in the rest of our passage either. Look at that quickly. Let's run to that. I know we're short on time. I'm just going to cut and paste that phrase into my final point of all my future sermons. Because it's just always going to happen. Look over at verses 10 through 32. Notice, I did this on purpose so I could smoothly avoid preaching on another genealogy. Um, But there's just one big thing that I want you to see here in these names. We've been saying since chapter 9 that the whole point of these final stories is to get us to Abraham. Everything's trying to get us to him. The chosen one through whom all nations will be blessed. Why? Is it because he's so great? Right? Is, this, is it because we've got to get to this guy and he's the good one and he's the wonderful one? We've seen in chapter 9 that it's not Noah, so we're looking for the next one. Everything is driving us forward uh, to Abraham. But we first got to understand before we get to chapter 12, we have to understand who Abraham is and we have to understand why God is calling him. Why does he get to be the one? Right. Is this chapter kind of verses 1 through 9? All right, those are the bad guys. We're done with that. Phew. Now we're on to verses 10 on on. Now we're on to the line of Shem. Now we're on to the good guys. No, actually not at all. It's hinted at in the text, and then it's made very clear for us later. Look down there. Look at verse 26. It starts first with Terah. Most argue that Terah's name is related to the word Moon. First of all, that's a little strange, and that's a little bit odd. Okay, but it's just a name. But then we see that Terah is specifically connected to only two specific places. It's Ur in verse 28, and then it's Haran in verse 31. You know, we, we know these places. We've, we've excavated these places. There's all kinds of work done in these places. And both of them were the thriving centers of moon worship, where the god Sin, spelled S-I-N, pronounced Sin, was worshipped. You pull, pull up Wikipedia, and you can search the moon god scene, and one whole heading is, what were the main seats of worship for scene? And it gets two. It's Ur, and it's Haran. That's not a good sign. And then there are the other names. Verse 29. Abram marries Sarai, which could mean princess in Hebrew, but they're not Hebrews at this point, really. They're in Babylon right now. So in Akkadian, in that language... Her name is a translation for Ningal, who was like the female consort of the moon god Sin. She was a goddess who slept with the other god. Nahor marries Milka, which is the name of the goddess who is the daughter of the moon god of Sin. Later on in Genesis, we'll get to Laban. Abraham will send um, Isaac and all they'll go find their wives and everything with Laban, which is Nahor's grandson. And he very much is a worshiper of these false gods. And so just with the names, as you start to read it, something doesn't feel right, right? Something feels off in this last part. And then if you just keep reading, just kind of out of the blue, seemingly out of nowhere, you get to Joshua 24, verse 2, and we read this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. That they, which is including Abraham, served 
other gods. And that's how part one of Genesis ends. Terra, the pagan worshiper of the moon god, dies at the end. Sarai, in verse 30, is barren. Just so we're clear on what that means, it repeats it for us. She had no child. We know what that means, but it repeats it. This is supposed to be the godly chosen line. This is supposed to be the line from which the seed of the woman, the snake crusher, is to come. And guess what? Just like at the Tower of Babel, it's in disarray. There is no Abel offering here sacrifices to God. There are no Sethites calling on the name of the Lord. There is no righteous, blameless Noah. Everything is different here. There's just a bunch of pagans worshiping a false moon god. The end. That's how part one ends. Which means then that we end part one with no nations united with God. Which means that we seemingly end with no hope. At least what I want you to see is that there's no hope in man. Chapter 11 is the culminating conclusion that reaches all the way back to chapter 3, verse 6, with the first sin, and everything culminates with this sin at the Tower of Babel, and it then culminates with even the supposed godly line in chaos. You cannot read Genesis 1 through 11 and come out believing that mankind is generally good. This does not paint a positive picture of the human condition. It paints a picture of depravity. It paints a picture of idolatry. There is nothing good in man. There is no hope in man. They're united, and they rebel against God together. The supposed good ones, they're united in worshiping other gods together. The end. That's how part one ends. So that's how we're going to end. So it seems like we've hit a dead end. And so we're going to stop and leave it as Noah stops and leaves it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. That is a hard and difficult word. It's a sobering look at the human condition. And Father, it's a sobering look at ourselves. Um, as we see that it's not just about some people thousands of years ago building a tower. It's about all of us seeking to find significance and security apart from you which is what all of us do, because all of us are sinners, Lord. And so I pray that you would use this word to penetrate our hearts. I pray that you would use it to show us the darkness that remains. I pray that you would use it to show us our sin, Lord, and to show us that there is no hope within ourselves. And Father, we ask that you would then use that to turn us outside of ourselves, to look elsewhere, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. And, and thank God. Right? What an awful way to end a sermon. I tried it again. I don't think it really works. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable ending a sermon like that. But I only do it when I have the Lord's Supper because I know now I can do this. And I even prayed quicker because I, like, I got to get out of here. I got to finish and get back to the good news. That's awful. Right? It just ends awfully. But in your reading it, it goes right into chapter 12, into the but God. Now God does this. We're not going to get there for many months, so we just can't let it sit. So it's perfect that with this, as we end chapter 1, which ends on a dark note, that we've got this. Because this can help us understand that. And I wanted to try, it felt, it felt artificial. I wanted to try to end Genesis 11 on such a bleak note, because that bleak note then ultimately helps us understand this. For many of you, Right? You do not yet truly understand and appreciate the grace of God because you do not yet truly understand and appreciate the sin of you. Right? The world is trying to minimize sin. Right? And sadly, many of the church are also trying to minimize sin. But when you minimize sin, what you actually end up only doing is minimizing grace. And when you minimize grace, you actually end up only minimizing God. But... As if I said at the beginning, if we can just sit in the dark for a little bit, right, if we can take a good long look at sin and actually begin to feel its weight and see how terrible it is, then maybe we'll be ready to start to appreciate grace. Because if Genesis 11 ends the way that it does with everyone, including Abraham, a pagan worshiper of a false god, 
But then at the opening of 12, God comes and calls and rescues that Abraham. Well, then it can't be about Abraham, but about God. And if we're no better, then it can't be about us, but about God. That if things are really as bad as Genesis 11 says, then the only hope is grace. And if things are really this bad, then grace is really that good, which means that this is that good. What this represents is that good. Because, like Genesis 11, leading into 12, this Lord's Supper both reveals to us how bad we are, but also how good and gracious God is. But again, if you don't see the first part, you'll never then fully appreciate the second part. If you don't see sin, you'll never love grace. And so this, this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice represents that grace for us. This is a picture of the gospel for us. These symbol elements represent and reveal to us profound realities, the body and the blood of Christ, for he is the gospel. Christ is grace. If things are as bad as Genesis 11 says, then there is no hope within ourselves. We cannot get to God. We cannot uh, build a tower up to him, ascend the heights. We cannot make a name for ourselves because all we do is rebel against God. We cannot be good enough for God because all we are are sinners worshiping something other than God. You can't do it. That's why the gospel is such good news. And that's why we need the gospel, which is the one message that is different than every other message, that while we cannot do it, Christ has done it for us. Right? We've seen so clearly in the first part of Genesis that God judges sin. He has to. He's holy. And that's why Christ comes to die. He comes to take our place. We rightly deserve death for our sin. Well, this bread and this cup represent the fact that Jesus Christ came and took your death for you and died that death in your place. And if that's true, then that means that our penalty has been paid. We have been set free. We can now be with God and right with God and all because of Christ and what he has done for us. So again, what I want you to see in Genesis 11 is that it can't be about us. It's all about him. All we contribute is the sin. All we contribute is the Genesis 11, which makes the necessary God's grace in Genesis 12 so wonderful. Christ has died so that we can live. That's our only hope. Genesis 11 is clear. He's our only hope. And that's what this is about. And so if what this represents is true for you, if you are one with Christ, if you are born again, if you are trusting in his finished work on your behalf as your only hope, oh, then come and eat and drink and be fed by faith on Jesus Christ, remembering what he has done for you, resting in what he has done for you. This is for you, struggling sinner. But if what this represents is not true for you, and if you are not a Christian, or if you're not sure, if you don't trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, well, then we'd also ask you to not partake of this. Instead of coming forward, man, consider Christ. Ask yourself what your Tower of Babel is. Ask yourself how it is that you're trying to make a name for yourself. Ask yourself what you're living for, and then ask yourself how that's going for you. Christ is better. Right? You are sin. I am sin. Christ offers grace. So instead of coming forward, man, come to Christ. Put your, your faith and your trust in him. And if you have questions about what that is or what that means, please come and find me afterwards. So we're going to begin. What we're going to do, remember, uh, come forward to the middle, uh, grab the elements, grab the cup, uh, grab the bread, hold on to those, take them back to your seat, spend a little time uh, meditating, uh, praying, confessing sin, praising God, um, and hold on to those, and we'll partake all those together. This is communion. We're communing not just with God, but with one another around these elements. Um, so let me pray, um, and then we will then we'll begin.